World Brain by H.G. Wells. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Preface. The papers and addresses I have collected in this little book are submitted as contributions, however informal, to what is essentially a scientific research. But it is a research in a field to which scientific standing is not generally accorded, and where peculiar methods have to be employed. It is in the field of constructive sociology, the science of social organization. This is a special subsection of human ecology, which is a branch of general ecology which again is a stem in the great and growing cluster of biological sciences. It stands with paleontology at the opposite pole to experimental biology. Hardly any verificatory experiment is possible and no controls. It is a science of pure observation, therefore, of analysis and of search for confirmatory instances. On the one hand, it passes, without crossing any definite boundaries, into historical science proper into the analysis of historical fact, that is, and on the other hand, into the examination of such matters as geographical and geological conditions and the social consequences of industrial processes. Human ecology surveys the species Homo sapiens as a whole in space and time. Sociology is that part of the survey which concerns itself with the interaction and interdependence of human groups and individuals. It is hardly to be distinguished from social psychology. There has been an enormous increase in the intensity and scope of human interaction and interdependence during the past half million years or more. Communities and what one may call ranges of reaction have enlarged and continue to enlarge more and more rapidly towards a planetary limit. The human intelligence is involved in this enlargement, and it is too deeply concerned with its role in the process to observe it with the detachment it can maintain towards the facts, for example, of astronomy or crystallography. Constructive sociology has to bring not only the study of conduct, but an irreducible element of purpose into its problems. Human beings are not simply born or thrown together into association like a swarm of herrings. They keep together with a sense of collective activities and common ends even if these ends are little more than mutual aid, protection, and defense. Throughout the whole range of ecology, we study the adaptation of living species to changing environments. But outside the human experience, these adaptations are generally made unconsciously by the natural selection of mutations and variations. These adaptations are inherited. They are either successful and the species is modified and survives, or it perishes. In the cerebral animals, however, natural selection is supplemented by a very considerable individual adaptability. Memories and habits are established in each generation which fit individuals to the special circumstances of their own generation. They are adaptations which perish with the individual. Such creatures learn. They are educable creatures. Dogs, cats, seals, elephants, for example, learn, and the next generation has, if necessary, to learn the old lessons all over again, or a different lesson. In the human being, there is an unprecedented extension of educability. Not only is learning developed to relatively immense proportions, but it is further supplemented by curiosity, precept, and tradition. In such a slow-breeding creature as man, educational adaptation is beyond all comparison, a swifter process than genetic adaptation. His social life, his habits, have changed completely, have even undergone reversion and reversal. While his heredity seems to have changed very little, if at all, since the late Stone Age, possibly he is more teachable now and with a more prolonged physical and mental adolescence. The human individual is born now to live in a society for which his fundamental instincts are altogether inadequate. He has to be educated systematically for his social role. The social man is a manufactured product of which the natural man is the raw nucleus. In a world of fluctuating and generally expanding communities and ranges of reaction, the science of constructive sociology seeks to detect and give definition to the trends and requirements of man's social circumstances, 
and to study the possibilities and methods of adapting the natural man to them. It is the science of current adaptations. It has, therefore, two reciprocal aspects. On the one hand, it has to deal with social organizations, laws, customs, and regulations, which may either be actually operative or merely projected and potential. And on the other hand, it has to examine the education these real or proposed social organizations require. These two aspects are inseparable. They need to fit like hand and glove. Plans and theories of social structure and plans and theories of education are the outer and inner aspects of the same thing. Each necessitates the other. Every social order must have its own distinctive process of education. In the past, this imperative association of education and social structure was not recognized so clearly as it is at the present time. Communities would grow up and not change their mental clothes until they burst out of them. Ideas would change and disorganize institutions. For the past 26 centuries, and particularly, and much more definitely, during the last three, there has been a very great expenditure of mental energy upon the statement in various terms and metaphors, as theologies, as religions, socialisms, communisms, devotions, loyalties, codes of behavior, and so on, of the desirable and necessary form of human adaptation to new conditions of association. From the point of view of constructive sociology, of, to coin a hideous phrase, human adaptology, all these efforts, though not deliberately made as experiments, are so much experience and working material, and though almost all of them have involved special teachings, doctrines, they need for a close interlocking of training and teaching what the social order sought, though always fairly obvious, has never been so fully realized as it is today. The new doctrines were often only subconsciously linked to the new needs. The idea, for instance, of a universal god replacing local gods ensued upon the growth of great empires, but it was not explicitly related to the growth of great empires. The connection was not plainly apparent to men's minds. In the looser, easier past of our species, there has never been such close interweaving of current usage and practices with instruction and precept as we are now beginning to feel desirable. The reference of one to the other was not direct. Now education becomes more and more definitely political and economic. It must penetrate deeper and deeper into life as life ceases to be customary and grows more and more deliberately planned and adjusted. The need for lively and continuous invention in constructive sociology and for an animated and animating progressive education correlated with these innovations has hardly more than dawned on the world. The urgency of adaptation has still to be grasped. Throughout the 19th century, certain systems of adaptive ideas spread throughout the world to meet the requirements of what was recognized with increasing understanding as a new age. Mechanism was altering both the fundamental need for toil and the essential nature of war. The practical and cynically accepted need for laboring classes and subject peoples was dissolving quietly out of human thought, though it still exists in the minds of those who employ personal servants. Means of intercommunication and mutual help and injury have developed amazingly. The mechanical unification of the world has been demanding and still demands profound moral and ideological readjustments. It is, for example, being realized slowly but steadily that the fragmentary control of production and trade through irresponsible individual ownership gives quite lamentably inadequate results, that the whole property money system needs revision very urgently and that the belated recrudescence of sentimental nationalism, largely through misguided school teaching and newspaper propaganda, is becoming an increasing menace to world welfare. The old ideological equipments throughout the world are misfits everywhere. Mental and moral adaptation is lagging dreadfully behind the change in our conditions. A great and menacing gulf opens which only an immense expansion of teaching and instruction can fill. In the field of sociology, it is impossible to disentangle social analysis from literature, and the criticism of the social order by Ruskin, William Morris, and so forth was at least as much a contribution to social science as 
Herbert Spencer's quasi-scientific defense of individualism and the abstractions and dogmas of the political economists. The biological sciences did not spread very easily into this undeveloped region. It was a hinterland of novel problems and possibilities. Even today, proper methods of study in this field have still to be worked fully out and brought into association. It has to be explored by moral and religious appeals, by utopias and speculative writings of a quality and texture very unsatisfying to scientific workers in more definite fields. It is still subject to eruptions of a type that the normal scientist of today finds highly questionable. Poets, even, and seers have their role in this experimentation. But economics and sociology can only be made hard sciences by eliminating much of their living content. Knowledge has to be attained by any available means. Inquirers cannot be limited to passable limitations, the methods followed in other fields. It may be doubted if constructive sociology and educational science can ever be freed from a certain literary, aesthetic, and ethical flavoring. We have to assume certain desiderata before we can get down to effective, applicable work. Yet it does seem possible to state the problem of adaptation in practical scientific terms. It was not realized at first, and it is still not fully realized, how vague and unsuitable for immediate application the generous propositions of socialism and world peace remain, until further intensive and continuous research and elaboration have been undertaken. It is widely assumed that to profess socialism or pacifism implies the immediate undertaking of vehement political activities, unencumbered by further thought. But the profession of socialism or world peace should commit a man to nothing of the sort. Socialism and world peace are hardly more than sketches of the general frame of adaptation of which our species stands in need. We are all socialists nowadays. But all the same, there is very little really efficient working socialism. All men are brothers. We have echoed that since the days of Buddha and Christ. But Spain and China are poor evidence of that fraternity. We know we want these things quite clearly, but we have still to learn how they are to be got. Man reflects before he acts, but not very much. He is still by nature intellectually impatient. No sooner does he apprehend, in whole or in part, the need of a new world than, without further plans or estimates, he gets into a state of passionate aggressiveness and suspicion and sets about trying to change the present order. There and then he sets about it, without anything that comes handy, violently, disastrously, making the discordances worse instead of better, and quarreling bitterly with anyone who is not in complete accordance with his particular spasmodic conception of the change needful. He is unable to realize that, when the time comes to act, that also is the time to think fast and hard. He will not think enough. There has been, therefore, an enormous waste of human mental, moral, and physical resources in premature revolutionary thrusts, ill-planned, dogmatic, essentially unscientific reconstructions and restorations of the social order during the past hundred years. This was the inevitable first result of the discrediting of those old and superseded mental adaptations, which were embodied in the institutions and education of the past. They discredited themselves and left the world full of problems. The idea of expropriating the owners of land and industrial plants, for instance, socialism, long preceded any deliberate attempt to create a competent receiver. Hysterical objection to further research, to any sustained criticism, has been, and is still characteristic of nearly all the pseudo-constructive movements of our time, culminating in projects for a seizure of power by some presumptuous oaf or other. The meanest thing in human nature is the fear of responsibility and the craving for leadership. Right dictators there are, and left dictators, and in effect there is hardly a pin to choose between them. The important thing about them from our present point of view is that fear-saturated impatience for guidance, which renders dictatorships possible. First there comes a terrifying realization of the limitless uncontrolled change now in progress then wild stampedes, suspicions, mass murders, and finally, mus ridiculus, the hero emerges, a poor single silly little human cranium held high and adorned usually with something preposterous in the way of hats. He knows, they cry, 
Hail the leader. He acts his part. He may even believe in it. And for quite a long time, the crowd will refuse to realize that not only is nothing better than it was before, but that change is still marching on and marching at it, as inexorably as though there were no leaders on the scene at all. Between the extremes of right and left hysteria, there remains a great underdeveloped region in the world of political thought and will that we may characterize as do-nothing democracy. Out of the sudden realization of its do-nothingness arise these psychological storms which give gangster dictators their opportunities. It is only gradually that people have come to realize that current democratic institutions are a very poor, slow, and slack method of conducting human affairs, which need an exhaustive revision. And that when one has declared oneself anti-fascist, anti-communist, or both, One has still said precisely nothing about the government of the world. One is brought back to the unsolved problem of the competent receiver. It exercised Plato. It has been intermittently revived and neglected ever since. It is an intricate and difficult problem. To that I can testify because for more than half my life it has been my main preoccupation. The attack on this problem, to begin with, is a task to be done in the study and the unhurried and irresponsible spirit of pure inquiry. As the attack gathers confidence, a taint of propaganda may easily infect it. But the less than constructive sociology is propagandist, the higher will be its scientific standing and the greater its ultimate usefulness to mankind. The application of the results of its researches is another business altogether. The business of the statesman, organizer, and practical administrator. And in spite of the paucity of disinterested explorers in this region of speculation and analysis, and in spite of the lack of effective discussion and interchange in this field, due mainly, I think, to the inadequate recognition of its immense scientific importance, which forces its workers so often into a hampering association with politically active bodies, there does seem to be a growing and spreading clarification of the realities of the human situation. It is becoming apparent that the real clue to that reconciliation of freedom and sustained initiative, the more elaborate social organization which is being demanded from us, lies in raising and unifying, and so implementing and making more effective, the general intelligence services of the world. That, at least, is the argument in this book. The missing factor in human affairs, it is suggested here, is a gigantic and many-sided educational renaissance. The highly educated section, the finer minds of the human race, are so dispersed, so ineffectively related to the common man, that they are powerless in the face of political and social adventures of the coarsest sort. We want a reconditioned and more powerful public opinion, and a universal organization and clarification of knowledge and ideas in a closer synthesis of university and educational activities, in the evocation, that is, of what I have called here a world brain, operating by an enhanced educational system through the whole body of mankind, a world brain which will replace our multitude of uncoordinated ganglia, our powerless miscellany of universities, research institutions, literatures with a purpose, national education systems, and the like. And that, and in that alone, it is maintained, is there any clear hope of a really competent receiver for world affairs? Any hope of an adequate directive control of the present destructive drift of world affairs? We do not want dictators. We do not want oligarchic parties or class rule. We want a widespread world intelligence conscious of itself. To work out a way to that world brain organization is therefore our primary need in this age of imperative construction. It is an immense undertaking, but not an impossible undertaking. I do not think there is any insurmountable obstacle in the way to the production of such a ruling world brain. There are favorable conditions for it, encouraging precedence and a plainly evident need. The various lectures, addresses, and papers collected here, few, thin and sketchy though they may seem, are all in their scope and measure contributions to this urgent research. H. G. Wells Chapter 1. World Encyclopedia Royal Institute of Great Britain Weekly Evening Meeting, 
Friday, November 20th, 1936. Most of the lectures that are given in this place to this audience are delivered by men of very special knowledge. They come here to tell you something that you did not know before. But tonight I doubt if I shall tell you anything that is not already quite familiar to you. I am here not to impart facts, but to make certain suggestions. And there's no other audience in the world to which I would make these suggestions more willingly and more hopefully than I do to you. My particular line of country has always been generalization and synthesis. I dislike isolated events and disconnected details. I really hate statements, views, prejudices, and beliefs that jump at you suddenly out of midair. I like my world as coherent and consistent as possible. So far, at any rate, my temperament is that of a scientific man. And that is why I have spent a few score thousand hours of my particular allotment of vitality in making outlines of history, short histories of the world, general accounts of the science of life, attempts to bring economic, financial, and social life into one conspectus, and even, still more desperate, struggles to estimate the possible consequences of this or that set of operating causes upon the future of mankind. All these attempts had profound and conspicuous faults and weaknesses. Even my friends are apt to mention them with an apologetic smile. Presumptuous and preposterous they were, I admit, but I look back upon them completely unabashed. Somebody had to break the ice. Somebody had to put out such summaries on the general mind. My reply to the superior critic has always been, forgive me, damn you, do it better. The least satisfactory thing about these experiments of mine, so far as I am concerned, is that they did not at once provoke the learned and competent to produce superior substitutes. And in view of the number of able and distinguished people we have in the world professing and teaching economic, sociological, financial science, and the admittedly unsatisfactory nature of the world's financial, economic, and political affairs, it is to me an immensely disconcerting fact that the work, Wealth, and Happiness of Mankind, which was first published in 1932, remains practically uncriticized, unstudied, and largely unread. The only attempt to bring human ecology into one correlated survey. Well, I mention this experimental work now in order that you should not think I am throwing casually formed ideas before you tonight. I am bringing you my best. The thoughts I am setting out here have troubled my mind for years, and my ideas have been slowly gathering definition throughout these experiments and experiences. They have interwoven more and more intimately with other solicitudes of a more general nature, in which I feel fairly certain of meeting your understanding and sympathy. I doubt if there is anybody here tonight who has not given a certain amount of anxious thought to the conspicuous ineffectiveness of modern knowledge and, how shall I call it, trained and studied thought in contemporary affairs. And I think that it is mainly in the troubled years since 1914 that the world of cultivated, learned, and scientific people of which you are so representative has become conscious of this ineffectiveness. Before that time, or to be more precise, before 1909 or 1910, the world, our world as we older ones recall it, was living in a state of confidence, of established values, of assured security, which is already becoming now almost incredible. We had no suspicion then how much that apparent security had been undermined by science, invention, and skeptical inquiry. Most of us carried on into the war, and even right through the war, under the inertia of the accepted beliefs to which we had been born. We felt that the sort of history that we were used to was still going on, and we hardly realized at all that the war was a new sort of thing. Not like the old wars, that the old traditions of strategy were disastrously out of date, and that the old pattern of settling up after a war could only lead to such a thickening tangle of evil consequences as we contemplate today. We know better now, wiser after the events as we all are. Few of us now fail to appreciate the stupendous ignorance, the almost total lack of grasp of social and economic realities, the short views, the shallowness of mind that characterized the treaty-making of 1919 and 1920. 
I suppose Mr. Maynard Keynes was one of the first to open our eyes to this worldwide intellectual insufficiency. What his book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, practically said to the world was this. These people, these politicians, these statesmen, these directive people who are in authority over us know scarcely anything about the business they have in hand. Nobody knows very much, but the important thing to realize is that they do not even know what is to be known. They arrange so-and-so, and so-and-so must ensue, and they cannot or will not see that so-and-so must ensue. They are so unaccustomed to competent thought, so ignorant that there is knowledge and of what knowledge is, that they do not understand that it matters. The same terrifying sense of insufficient mental equipment was drawing upon some of us who watched the birth of the League of Nations. Reluctantly, and with something like horror, we realized that these people who were, they imagined, turning over a new page and beginning a fresh chapter in human history, knew collectively hardly anything about the formative forces of history. Collectively, I say. Altogether, they had a very considerable amount of knowledge, uncoordinated bits of quite good knowledge. Some about this period and some about that, but they had no common understanding whatever of the processes in which they were obliged to mingle and interfere. Possibly all the knowledge and all the directive ideas needed to establish a wise and stable settlement of the world affairs in 1919 existed in bits and fragments here and there, but practically nothing had been assembled, practically nothing had been thought out, practically nothing had been done to draw that knowledge and these ideas together into a comprehensive conception of the world. I put it to you that the peace conference at Versailles did not use anything but a very small fraction of the political and economic wisdom that already existed in human brains at the time. And I put it to you as rational creatures that if usage had not chilled our apprehension to this state of affairs, we should regard this as fantastically absurd. And I might attempt a sweeping generalization about the general course of human history in the 18 years that have followed the war. I believe I should have you with me if I described it as a series of flounderings, violent, ill-directed mass movements, slack drifting here and convulsive action there. We talk about the dignity of history. It is a bookish phrase for which I have the extremest disrespect. There is no dignity yet in human history. It would be pure comedy if it were not so often tragic, so frequently dismal, generally dishonorable, and occasionally quite horrible. And it is so largely tragic because the creature really is intelligent, can feel finely and acutely, express itself poignantly in art, music, and literature. And this is what I am driving at. Impotently knows better. Consider only the case of America during this recent period. America, when all is said and done, is one of the most intelligently aware communities in the world. Quite a number of people over there seem almost to know what is happening to them. Remember first the phase of fatuous self-sufficiency, the period of unprecedented prosperity, the bloom, the crisis, the slump, and the dismay. And then appeared the new president, Franklin Roosevelt. And from the point of view of the present discussion, he is one of the most interesting figures in all history because he really did make an appeal for such knowledge and understanding as existed to come to his aid. America, in an astounding state of meekness, was ready to be told and shown. There were the universities, great schools, galaxies of authorities, learned men, experts, teachers, gowned, adorned, and splendid. Out of this knowledge mass, there have since come many very trenchant criticisms of the president's mistakes. But at the time, this, what shall I call it, this higher brain, this cerebrum, this gray matter of America was so entirely uncoordinated that it had nothing really comprehensive, searching, thought out, and trustworthy for him to go upon. The president had to experiment and attempt this and that. He turned from one promising advisor to another because there was nothing ready for him. He did not pretend to be a divinity. He was a politician of exceptional goodwill. He was none of your dictator gods. He showed himself extremely open and receptive for the organized information and guidance that wasn't there. And it isn't there now. Some years ago, there was a considerable fuss in the world about preparedness and unpreparedness. 
Most of that clamor concerned the possibility of war. But this was a case of a most fantastic unpreparedness on the part of hundreds of eminent men who were supposed to have studied them for the normal developments of a community in times of peace. There had been no attempt to assemble that mechanism of knowledge of which America stood in need. I repeat that if usage had not dulled us into a sort of acquiescence, we should think our species collectively insane to go about its business in this haphazard, planless, negligent fashion. I think I've said enough to recall to anyone here, who may have lapsed from the keen apprehension of his first realization, this wide gap between what I may call at the present unassembled and unexploited best thought and knowledge in the world, and the ideas and acts not simply of the masses of common people, but of those who direct public affairs, the dictators, the leaders, the politicians, the newspaper directors, and the spiritual guides and teachers. We live in a world of unused and misapplied knowledge and skill. That is my case. Knowledge and thought are ineffective. The human species regarded as a whole is extraordinarily like a man of the highest order of brain, who through some lesions or defects or insufficiencies of his lower centers suffers from the wildest uncoordinations, St. Vitus's dance, agraphia, aphonia, and suffers dreadfully knowing better all the time, from the silly and disastrous gestures he makes and the foolish things he says and does. I don't think this has ever been so evident as it is now. I doubt if in the past the gap was so wide as it is now between the occasions that confront us and the knowledge we have assembled to meet them. But because of a certain run of luck in the late 19th century, the existence of that widening gap and the menace of that widening gap was not thrust upon our attention as it has been since the war. At first, that realization of the ineffectiveness of our best thought and knowledge struck only a few people, like Mr. Maynard Keynes, for example, who were in what I call salient positions, but gradually I've noted the realization spreading and growing. It takes various forms. Prominent men of science speak more and more frequently of the responsibility of science for the disorder of the world. And if you are familiar with that most admirable of all newspapers, Nature, and if you care to turn over the files of that very representative weekly for the past quarter of a century or so, and sample the articles, you will observe a very remarkable change of note and scope in what it has to say to its readers. Time was when Nature was almost pedantically special and scientific. Its detachment from politics and general affairs was complete. But latterly, the concussions of the social earthquake and the vibrations of the guns have become increasingly perceptible in the laboratories. Nature, from being specialist, has become world-conscious, so that now it is almost haunted week by week by the question, what are we to do before it is too late to make what we know and our way of thinking effective in world affairs? In that, I think it is expressing a change which is happening in the minds of, if I may presume to class myself with you, nearly all people of the sort which fills this theater tonight. And consider again the topics that have been dealt with at the latest gathering of the British Association, the very title of the Presidential Address, The Impact of Science Upon Society. Sir Josiah Stamp, as you will remember, stressed the need of extending endowment and multiplying workers in the social sciences. Professor Philip dealt with the training of the chemist for the service of the community. Professor Cramp talked of the engineer and the nation. And there was an important discussion of the cultural and social values of science, in which Sir Richard Gregory, Professor Hogben, and Sir Daniel Hall said some memorable things. There can be no doubt of the reality of this awakening of the scientific worker to the necessity of his becoming a definitely organized factor in the social scheme of the years before us. Well, so far I have been merely opening up my subject and stating the problem for consideration. We want the intellectual worker to become a more definitely organized factor in the human scheme. How is that factor to be organized? Is there any way of implementing knowledge for ready and universal effect? I ask you to examine the question whether this great and growing gap of which we are becoming so acutely aware 
between special knowledge and thought and the common ideas and motives of mankind can be bridged? And if so, how it can be bridged? Can scientific knowledge and specialized thought be brought into a more effective relation to general affairs? Let us consider first what is actually going on. I find among my uneasy scientific and specialist friends a certain disposition, and I think it is a mistaken disposition, for direct political action and special political representation. The scientific and literary workers of the days when I was a young man were either indifferent or conservative in politics. Nowadays, quite a large proportion of them are inclined to active participation in extremist movements. Many are leftish and revolutionary. Some accept the strange pseudoscientific dogmas of the Communist Party. Though that does no credit to their critical training, and even those who are not out on the left are restless for some way of intervening, definitely as a class, in the general happenings of the community. Their ideas of possible action vary from important-looking signed pronouncements and protests to a sort of strike against war, the withholding of services, and the refusal to assist in technical developments that may be misapplied. Some favor the idea of a gradual suppression of the political forms and methods of mass democracy by government through some sort of elite in which the man of science and the technician will play a dominating part. There are very large, vague patches upon this idea, but the general projection is in the form of a sort of modern priesthood, an oligarchy of professors and exceptionally competent people. Like Plato, they would make the philosopher king. This project involves certain assumptions about the general quality and superiority of the intellectual worker that I am afraid will not stand scrutiny. I submit that sort of thing, political activities, party intervention, and dreams of an authoritative elite is not the way in which specialists, artists, and specialized thinkers and workers who constitute the vital feeling and understanding of the body politic can be brought into a conscious, effective, guiding, and directive relationship to the control of human affairs. Because, I hope you will acquit me of any disrespect for science and philosophy when I say this, we have to face the fact that from the point of view of general living, Men of science, artists, philosophers, specialized intelligences of any sort do not constitute an elite that can be mobilized for collective action. They are an extraordinarily miscellaneous assembly, and their most remarkable common quality is the quality of concentration and comparative retirement, each along his own line. They have none of the solidarity, the customary savoir-faire, the habits arising out of practices, activities, and interests in common that lawyers, doctors, or any of the really social-organized professions, for instance, display. A professor-ridden world might prove as unsatisfactory under the stress of modern life and fluctuating conditions as a theologian-ridden world. A distinguished specialist is precious because of his cultivated gift. It does not follow at all that by the standards of an all-round necessity he is a superior person. Indeed, by the very fact of his specialization, he may be less practiced and competent than the average man. He probably does not read his newspaper so earnestly. He finds much of the common round a bother and a distraction, and he puts it out of his mind. I think we should get the very gist of this problem. And if we could compare 12 miscellaneous men of science and special skill with 12 unspecialized men taken, let us say, from the head clerk's morning train to the city, we should probably find that for the commonplace teamwork and the ordinary demands and sudden urgencies of life, the second dozen was individually quite as good as, if not better than, the first dozen. In a burning hotel or cast away on a desert island, they would probably do quite as well and yet collectively they would be ill-informed and limited men. The whole dozen of them would have nothing more to tell you than any one of them. On the other hand, our dozen specialists would each have something distinctive to tell you. The former group would be almost as uniform in their knowledge and ability as tiles on a roof. The latter would be like pieces from a complicated jigsaw puzzle. The more you got them together, the more they would signify. Twelve clerks or a hundred clerks, it wouldn't matter. You would get nothing but dull repetitions and a flat, acquiescent, suggestible outlook upon life. 
but every specialized man we added would be adding something to the directive pattern of life. I think that consideration takes us a step further in defining our problem tonight. It is science, and not men of science, that we want to enlighten and animate our politics and rule the world. And now I will take rather a stride forward in my argument. I will introduce a phrase, new encyclopedism, which I shall spend most of the rest of my time defining. I want to suggest that something, a new social organ, a new institution, which for a time I shall call World Encyclopedia, is the means whereby we can solve the problem of that jigsaw puzzle and bring all the scattered and ineffective mental wealth of our world into something like a common understanding and into effective reaction upon our vulgar, everyday political, social, and economic life. I warn you that I am flinging moderation to the winds in the suggestions I am about to put before you. They are immense suggestions. I am sketching what is really a scheme for the reorganization and reorientation of education and information throughout the world, no less. We are so accustomed to the existing schools, colleges, universities, research organizations of the world. They have so molded and made us and trained us from our earliest years to respect and believe in them that it is with a real feeling of temerity, of alma matricidal impiety, so to speak that I have allowed my mind to explore their merits and question whether they are not altogether now an extraordinary loose, weak, and out-of-date miscellany. Yet I do not see how we can admit, and I am disposed to think that you have admitted with me, the existence of this terrifying gap between available knowledge and current social and political events, and not go on to something like an indictment of this whole great world of academic erudition training and instruction from China to Peru, an indictment for at least inadequacy and incoordination, if not for actual negligence. It may be only a temporary inadequacy, a pause in development before Renaissance, but inadequate altogether they are. Universities have multiplied greatly, yes, but they have failed to participate in the general advance in power, scope, and efficiency that has occurred in the past century. In transport, we have progressed from coaches and horses by way of trains to electric traction, motor cars and aeroplanes. In mental organization, we have simply multiplied our coaches and horses and livery stables. Let me now try to picture for you this missing element in the modern human social mechanism. This needed connection between the percipient and informative parts and the power organization for which I am using this phrase world encyclopedia, and I will take it first from the point of view of the ordinary educated citizen, for in a completely modernized state every ordinary citizen will be an educated citizen. I will ask you to imagine how this world encyclopedia organization would enter into his life and how it would affect him. From his point of view, the world encyclopedia would be a row of volumes in his own home, or in some neighboring house, or in a convenient public library, or in any school or college. And in this row of volumes, he would, without any great toil or difficulty, find in clear, understandable language, and kept up to date, the ruling concepts of our social order, the outlines and main particulars in all fields of knowledge, an exact and reasonably detailed picture of our universe the general history of the world. And if by any chance he wanted to pursue a question into its ultimate detail, a trustworthy and complete system of reference to primary sources of knowledge. In fields where wide varieties of method and opinion existed, he would find not casual summaries of opinions, but very carefully chosen and correlated statements and arguments. I do not imagine the major subjects as being dealt with in special articles rather hastily written and what has been a tradition of encyclopedias since the days of Diderot's heroic effort. Our present circumstances are altogether different from his. Nowadays, there is an immense literature of statement and explanation scattered through tens of thousands of books, pamphlets, and papers, and it is not necessary, it is undesirable to trust to such hurried summaries as the old tradition was obliged to make for its use. 
The day when an energetic journalist could gather together a few star contributors and a miscellany of compilers of very uneven quality to scribble him special articles, often tainted with propaganda and advertisement and call it an encyclopedia, is past. The modern world encyclopedia should consist of selections, extracts, quotations, very carefully assembled with the approval of outstanding authorities in each subject, carefully collated and edited and critically presented. It would not be a miscellany, but a concentration, a clarification, and a synthesis. This world encyclopedia would be the mental background of every intelligent man in the world. It would be alive and growing and changing continually under revision, extension, and replacement from the original thinkers in the world everywhere. Every university and research institution should be feeding it. Every fresh mind should be brought into contact with its standing editorial organization. And on the other hand, its contents would be the standard source of material for the instructional side of school and college work, for the verification of facts and the testing of statements everywhere in the world. Even journalists would deign to use it. Even newspaper proprietors might be made to respect it. Such an encyclopedia would play the role of an undogmatic Bible to a world culture. It would do just what our scattered and disorientated intellectual organizations of today fall short of doing. It would hold the world together mentally. It may be objected that this is a utopian dream. This is something too great to achieve, too good to be true. I won't deal with that for a few minutes. Flying was a utopian dream a third of a century ago. What I am putting before you is a perfectly sane, sound, and practicable proposal. But first I will notice briefly two objections, obstructions rather than objections, that one will certainly encounter at this point. One of these is not likely to appear in any great force in this gathering. You have all heard, and you have all probably been irritated or bored by the assertion that no two people think alike, that science is always contradicting itself, that theologians and economists can never agree. It is largely mental laziness on the defensive that makes people say this kind of thing. They don't want their intimate convictions turned over and examined, and it is unfortunate that the emphasis put upon minor differences by men of science and belief in their strenuous search for the completest truth and the exactest expression sometimes gives color to this sort of misunderstanding. But I am inclined to think that most people overrate the apparent differences in the world of opinion today. Even in theology, a psychological analysis reduces many flat contradictions to differences in terminology. My impression is that human brains are very much of a pattern, that under the same conditions they react in the same way and that were it not for tradition, upbringing, accidents of circumstance, and particularly of accidental individual obsessions, we should find ourselves, since we all face the same universe, much more in agreement than is superficially apparent. We speak different languages and dialects of thought and can even at times catch ourselves flatly contradicting each other in words while we are doing our utmost to express the same idea. And self-love and personal vanity are not excluded from the intellectual life. How often do we see men misrepresenting each other in order to exaggerate a difference and secure the gratification of an argumentative victory? A world encyclopedia, as I conceive it, would bring together into close juxtaposition and under critical scrutiny many apparently conflicting systems of statement. It might act not merely as an assembly of fact and statement, but as an organ of adjustment and adjudication, a clearinghouse of misunderstandings. It would be deliberately a synthesis and so act as a flux and a filter for a very great quantity of human misapprehension. It would compel men to come to terms with one another. I think it would relegate, quote, homines tot sentiente back to the Latin comedy from which it emerged. The second type of obstruction that this idea of a world encyclopedia will encounter is even less likely to find many representatives in the present gathering, and I will give it only the briefest of attention. You know that kind of neurologic expression, the high protesting voice, the fluttering gesture of the hands. But you will want to stereotype people. What a dreadful, dreadful world it will be when everybody thinks alike and so they go on. 
Most of these elegant people who want the world picturesquely at sixes and sevens are hopeless cases. But for the milder instances, it may be worthwhile remarking that it really does not enhance the natural variety and beauty of life to have all the clocks in a town keeping individual times of their own. No charts of the sea, no timetables, but trains starting secretly to unspecified destinations, infectious diseases without notification, and postmen calling occasionally when they can get by the picturesque footpads at the corner. I like order in the place of vermin. I prefer a garden to a swamp, and the whole various world to a hole-and-corner life in some obscure community. And tonight I like to imagine I am making my appeal to hearers of a kindred disposition to my own. And next let us take this world encyclopedia from the point of view of the specialist and the super-intellectual. To him, even more than to the common intelligent man, world encyclopedia is going to be of value because it is going to afford him an intelligible statement of what is being done by workers parallel with himself. And further, it will be giving him the general statement of his own subject that is being made to the world at large. He can watch that closely. On the assumption that the World Encyclopedia is based on a worldwide organization, he will be, if he is a worker of any standing, a corresponding associate of the encyclopedia organization. He will be able to criticize the presentation of his subject, to suggest amendments and restatements. For a world encyclopedia that was kept alive and up-to-date by the frequent reissue of its volumes could be made the basis of much fundamental discussion and controversy. It might breed swarms of pamphlets, and very wholesome swarms. It would give the specialist just that contact with the world at large which at present is merely caricatured by more or less elementary class teaching, amateurish examination work, and college administrations. In my dream of a world encyclopedia, I have a feeling that part of the scheme would be the replacement of the latter group of professional activities, the college business, tutoring, normal lecturing work, and so on, by a new set of activities, the encyclopedic work, the watching brief to prevent the corruption of the popular mind. In enlightening the general mind, the specialist will broaden himself. He will be redeemed from oddity, from shy preciousness, and practical futility. Well, you begin to see the shape of this project, and you will realize that it is far away from anything like the valiant enterprise of Denny Diderot and his associates a century and a half ago, except insofar as the nature of its reaction upon the world's affairs is concerned. That extraordinary adventure and intellectual synthesis makes this dream credible. That is our chief connection with it. And here I have to make an incidental disavowal. I want to make it clear how little I have to do with what I am now discussing. In order to get some talk going upon this idea of an encyclopedia, I have been circulating a short memorandum upon the subject among a number of friends. I did not think to mark it private, and unhappily one copy seems to have fallen into the hands of one of those minor pests of our time, a personal journalist, who had once rushed into print with the announcement that I was proposing to write a brand new encyclopedia, all with my own little hand out of my own little head, at the age of seventy. Once a thing of this sort is started, there is no stopping it, and I admit that announcement put me in my place in a pleasantly ridiculous light. But I think after what I have put before you now, that you will acquit me of any such colossal ambition. I implore you not to let that touch of personal absurdity belittle the greatness and urgency of the cause I am pleading. This encyclopedia I am thinking of is something in which manifestly I have neither the equipment nor the quality to play any but an infinitesimal part. I am asking for it in the role of a common intelligent man who needs it and understands the need for it, both for himself and his world. After that, you can leave me out of it. It is just because in the past I have had some experience in the assembling of outlines of knowledge for popular use that I realize perhaps better than most people the ineffectiveness of this sort of effort on the part of individuals or small groups. It is something that must be taken up and taken up very seriously by the universities, the learned societies, the responsible educational organizations if it is to be brought into effective being. It is a super-university I'm thinking of, a world brain, no less. 
It is nothing in the nature of a supplementary enterprise. It is a completion necessary to modernize the university idea. And that brings me to the last part of this speculation. Can such an encyclopedia as I have been suggesting to you be a possible thing? How can it be set going? How can it be organized and paid for? I agree I have now to show you it is a possible thing. For I have been going to make the large assumption that you think if it is a possible thing, it is a desirable thing. How are we to set about it? I think something in this way. To begin with, we want a promotion organization. We want, shall I call it, an encyclopedia society to ask for an encyclopedia and get as many people as possible asking for an encyclopedia. Directly that society asks for an encyclopedia, it will probably have to resort to precautionary measures against any enterprising publisher who may see in that demand a chance for selling some sort of vamped up miscellany as the thing required, and who may even trust to the unworldliness of learned men for some sort of countenance for his raid. And next, this society of promoters will have to survey the available material. For most of the material for a modern encyclopedia exists already, though in a state of impotent diffusion. In all the various departments with which an encyclopedia should deal, groups of authoritative men might be induced to prepare a comprehensive list of primary and leading books and articles, statements which taken together would give the best, clearest, and most quintessential renderings of what is known and thought within their departments. This would make a sort of key bibliography to the thoughts and knowledge of the world. My friend Sir Richard Gregory has suggested that such a key bibliography for a world encyclopedia would in itself be a worthwhile thing to evoke. I agree with him. I haven't an idea what we should get. I imagine something on the scale of 10 or 20,000 items. I don't know. Possibly, our Encyclopedia Society would find that such a key bibliography was in itself a not unprofitable publication. But that is a comment, by the way. The next step from this key bibliography would be the organization of a general editorial board and of departmental boards. These would be permanent bodies, for a world encyclopedia must have a perennial life. We should have to secure premises, engage a literary staff, and, with the constant cooperation of the departmental groups, set about the task of making our great synthesis and abstract. I must repeat that for the purposes of a world encyclopedia, probably we would not want much original writing. If a thing has been stated clearly and compactly once for all, why paraphrase it or ask some inferior hand to restate it? Our job may be rather to secure the use of copyrights and induce leading exponents of this or that field of science or criticism to cooperate in the selection, condensation, expansion, or simplification of what they have already said so well. And now I will ask you to take another step forward and imagine our world encyclopedia has been assembled and digested and that the first edition is through the press. So far, we shall have been spending money on this great enterprise and receiving nothing. We shall have been spending capital, for which I have at present not accounted. I will merely say that I see no reason why the capital needed for these promotion activities should not be forthcoming. There is no gainful enterprise, but you have to remember that the values we should create would be far more stable than the ephemeral encyclopedias representing sums round about a million pounds or so which have a third to been the high water of encyclopedic enterprise. These were essentially book-selling enterprises made to exploit a demand. But this world encyclopedia, as I conceive it, if only because it will have roped in the larger part of the original sources of exposition, discussion, and information, will be in effect a world monopoly. And it will be able to levy and distribute direct and indirect revenue on a scale quite beyond the resources of any private publishing enterprise. I do not see that the financial aspects of this huge enterprise, big though the sums involved may be, present any insurmountable difficulties in the way of its realization. The major difficulty will be to persuade the extremely various preoccupied, impatient, and individualistic scholars, thinkers, scientific workers, and merely distinguished but unavoidable man on whose participation its success depends, of its practicability, convenience, and desirability. And so far as the promotion of it goes, I am reasonably hopeful. 
quite a few convinced, energetic, and resourceful people could set this ball rolling towards realization. To begin with, it is not necessarily to convert the whole world of learning, research, and teaching. I see no reason why at any stage it should encounter such positive opposition. Negative opposition, the refusal to have anything to do with it and so forth, can be worn down by persistence and the gathering promise of success. It has not to fight adversaries or win majorities before it gets going. And once this ball is fairly set rolling, it will be very hard to stop. A greater danger, as I have already suggested, will come from attempts at the private mercenary exploitation of this worldwide need, the raids of popular publishers and heavily financed salesmen, and in particular attempts to create copyright difficulties and so to corner the services and prestige of this or that unwary eminent person by anticipatory agreements. Vis-a-vis with Salesmanship, the man of science, the man of the intellectual elite, is apt to show himself a very simple Simon indeed. And of course, from the very start, various opinionated cults and propagandists will be doing their best to capture or buy the movement. While we mustn't be captured or bought, and in particular our silence must not be bought or captured, that danger may in the end prove to be a stimulus. It may be possible in some cases to digest and assimilate special cults to their own and the general advantage. And there will be a constant danger that some of the early promoters may feel an attempt to realize a sort of proprietorship in the organization to make a group or a gang of it. But to recognize that danger is halfway to averting it. I have said nothing so far about the language in which the encyclopedia should appear. It is a question I have not worked out, but I think that the main text should be in one single language, from which translations in whole or part could be made. Catholic Christianity during the years of its greatest influence was held together by Latin, and I do not think I am giving way to any patriotic bias when I suggest that unless we contemplate a polyglot publication, and never yet have I heard of a successful polyglot publication, English because it has a wider range than German, a greater abundance and a greater subtlety of expression than French, and more precision than Russian is the language in which the original text of a world encyclopedia ought to stand. And moreover, it is in the English-speaking communities that such an enterprise as this is likely to find the broadest basis for operations. The frankest criticism and the greatest freedom from official interference and government propaganda But that must not hinder us from drawing help and contributions from and contemplating a use in every community in the world. And so far I have laid no stress upon the immense advantage this enterprise would have in its detachment from immediate politics. Ultimately, if our dream is realized, it must exert a very great influence upon everyone who controls administrations, makes wars, directs mass behavior, feeds, moves, starves, and kills populations. But it does not immediately challenge these active people. It is not the sort of thing to which they would be directly antagonistic. It is not ostensibly anti-them. It would have a terrible and ultimately destructive aloofness. They would not easily realize its significance for all that they do and are. The prowling beast will fight savagely if it is pursued and challenged upon the jungle path in the darkness. But it goes home automatically as the day breaks. You see how such an encyclopedic organization could spread like a nervous network, a system of mental control about the globe, knitting all the intellectual workers of the world to a common interest and a common medium of expression into a more and more conscious cooperating unity and a growing sense of their own dignity, informing without pressure or propaganda, directing without tyranny. It could be developed wherever conditions were favorable. It could make inessential concessions and bide its time in regions of exceptional violence, grow vigorously again with every return to liberalism and reason. So I sketch my suggestion for a rehabilitation of thought and learning that ultimately may release a new form of power in the world, recalling indeed the power and influence of the churches and religions of the past, but with a progressive, adaptable, and recuperative quality that none of these possessed. I believe that in some such way, as I have sketched tonight, 
the mental forces now largely and regrettably scattered and immobilized in the universities, the learned societies, research institutions, and technical workers of the world could be drawn together in a real directive world intelligence. And by that mere linking and implementing of what is known, human life as a whole could be made much surer, stronger, bolder, and happier than it has ever been up to the present time. And until something of this sort is done, I do not see how the common life can ever be raised except occasionally, locally, and by a conspiracy of happy chances, above its present level of impulsiveness, insincerity, insecurity, general, under vitality, under nourishment and aimlessness. For that reason, I think the promotion of an organization for a world encyclopedia may prove in the long run to be a better investment for the time and energy of intelligent men and women than any definite revolutionary movement, socialism, communism, fascism, imperialism, pacifism, or any other of the current isms into which we pour ourselves and our resources so freely. None of these movements have anything like the intellectual comprehensiveness needed to construct the world anew. Let me be very clear upon one point. I am not saying that a world encyclopedia will in itself solve any single one of the vast problems that must be solved if man is to escape from his present dangers and distresses and enter upon a more hopeful phase of history. What I am saying, and saying with the utmost conviction, is this that without a world encyclopedia to hold men's minds together in something like a common interpretation of reality, there is no hope whatever of anything but an accidental and transitory alleviation of any of our world's troubles. As mankind is, so it will remain until it pulls its mind together. And if it does not pull its mind together, then I do not see how it can help but decline. Never was a living species more perilously poised than ours at the present time. If it does not take thought to end its present mental indecisiveness, catastrophe lies ahead. Our species may yet end its strange eventful history as just the last, the cleverest, of the great apes. The great ape that was clever, but not clever enough. It could escape from most things, but not from its own mental confusion. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.